I would rather have little faith in a big God than a lot of faith in a little God. Lowercase g at that. And now for Repent and Believe Part 2. Initially, I was going to jump and clap my feet to express my enthusiasm. And I was going to talk about how excited I was to finally be able to drive. I wasn't expecting my dad to mention it there. (laughs) To be quite frank, if this wasn't a normal imagination station, this would probably be the most enthusiastic, positive, emotional imagination station I've ever preached. But it's not a usual imagination station. Today I have 23 minutes to tell you about three words. Repent and believe. Part two. Previously, in 23 minutes, I got through 13 verses of Mark 1. Today, I only plan to get through two of them. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. You can read along if you'd like. I'll be starting off in the NLT translation. Now, it reads, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, that's only two verses. You may be thinking with only two verses and 23 minutes, there's not a lot I could do with that. But oddly enough, this sermon has been the one that I've had the most variables on in preparation. Like, there's so many ways that I could go that as I stand before you right now, I'm just like you in regards to I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to preach. But we'll figure it out as we go. Amen. (laughs) So jumping right into the explanation of the scripture. We have verse 14, and we see some interesting things, as Joseph S. Excel points out. On one hand, we see that good men are often made the subject of social approach. We have John the Baptist, who is stated to be the greatest born of women, and yet he's being thrown into jail. And this is more or less the end of his ministry. He's a perfect example that good men are often made the subject of social reproach. And we know this is the case for several reasons. On one hand, whenever you have a good man, it draws the envy of those who are wicked. Now, I'm going to just ask y'all this. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. But who doesn't want to be good? And then at the same time, with the question of who doesn't want to be good, how many people are actually good? So when you have so many people that want to be good, but so few people who are good, you get a lot of envy towards those who are actually righteous. You hear? And then it's not just that. You have the righteous, and many times the righteous, especially biblically, call out the unrighteous. You have the good who will call out the wicked, and if you're wicked and you want to be good and you're being called out by the actual good, it makes you even more angry at them. Additionally, we see that useful men are often rendered incapable of work through the tyranny of others. Even though he's a righteous man, even though he's under God, he's still oppressed by the ruler of this world. Satan wants to oppress the children of God. And many times he's able to for a season, yet the Lord still prevails. And we also see, interestingly enough, that even though John is thrown into jail, something beautiful happens. And that's that he's just about immediately replaced. And he's not just replaced. He's replaced by someone so much greater than him that John himself had stated, I'm not even worthy of being that man's slave. To bend down and wash his feet and to be quite frank, to be God in the flesh, that is pretty fitting. We see not only that John is replaced, but he's replaced immediately. With the decrease of John the Baptist, we see an increase of Jesus Christ. The beginning of his ministry ended with John's. 
It's interesting because we see that the Gospels are all about Jesus. And in the process of being all about Jesus, we oftentimes see people actually somehow use Jesus to negate the rest of the Gospels. Now, hear me out here. Have you ever heard that person, whenever you mention something's wrong, they'll say, but did Jesus ever explicitly talk about it? You know, you have a bunch of verses in the Bible saying not to do this or not to do that. But did Jesus explicitly say anything about it? You see, the interesting thing about the word is that it's inspired, it's breathed by God, and yet somehow people will say, but did Jesus say anything about it? It all is about Jesus. You can't invalidate scripture with Jesus because it's all about Jesus. Amen. And the interesting thing is, right, he's coming to redeem us. And with the same thought that it's all about Jesus, the question comes to mind, is my focus on the Lord? We're in the world. And we're of the flesh. And it's really, really easy to get distracted. And even if we're not distracted, it's super easy to focus on the wrong things. You can even idolize a minister or a prophet or a healer, anybody whom you think has the anointing. And you'll look at that man or that woman that's of God and you'll think, I'm going to worship them. It may not be explicit, but that's basically how it's approached. You'll put an individual in the flesh up to the standard of God. And I'll tell you this. If you put a finite human flesh Sinful, serving the same God as you do, up to the same standard of an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, all-present God, they can't help but fail every single time. It's why you'll find some people that will go from church to church to church to church, but they can't seem to find anything that fits to them because they're looking for this perfect minister that doesn't exist. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So that's why the first question of the sermon is simply, is my focus on the Lord? Amen. So jumping on. We have Jesus's first public sermon, and we only see two sentences for this first public sermon. For starters, it wasn't just two sentences long, but this is the essence of that sermon. This is the essence of the gospel. And what do we see Jesus saying as the essence of the gospel? The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now we can take this line by line. Firstly, we have the time promised by God has come at last. As I mentioned in the last sermon, Christ is a title, and this title stands for Messiah. Messiah in the Old Testament is tied with a bunch of prophecies. At this point, you have the Israelites who have been in exile for centuries. And when they think of the word Messiah, what do they think about? They think of a man who's going to come and liberate them from human rule, separate them from the Romans, and lead them to create a prosperous, a glorious, a splendiferous kingdom in the world. And you see, Jesus is the person that everybody's talking about. The thing is, Jesus is not who everybody thinks he is. You know, they expected this king, this Messiah, to come down to the world and to fit the ideas that they had already made. And yet, to be quite frank, Jesus was against a lot of them. Jesus did not agree with those Pharisees and those Sadducees. Jesus was performing miracles as proof. But my guess is, if Jesus didn't perform miracles, nobody would even listen to the man. Jesus was what nobody expected the Messiah to look like. Yet still, he was the one. He was the prophesied one among them. And the next we have the kingdom of God is near. Again, they're expecting an earthly kingdom. But whenever we see the kingdom of God is near, they can't see it. They can't hear it. They can't taste it. They can't smell it. They can't feel it. Where's the kingdom? Hearing the kingdom of God is near, yet they can't experience it in the flesh. The interesting thing is they were still invited. They could still accept the kingdom. The kingdom of God was very near, just not in a physical sense. It was a spiritual kingdom. 
And the most interesting thing at this point is that Jesus, to a large extent, sounds like he's evangelizing. Sounds like he's proselytizing which is to change an individual's or try to convert an individual's worldview or religion over to yours. And the reason why I mention this is because if you've listened to my last few sermons, you know that I love when going through scripture to talk about things that are very commonly held in belief, yet they're simply not biblical. And I don't do this because I want to cause conflicts in the church and a whole lot of discourse, but because some people may not know. There are a lot of popular sayings that people associate with Christianity that are simply not biblical. And you may be wondering, Who in their right mind as a Bible-believing Christian is going to say that the Bible is against evangelizing, that the Bible is against proselytizing, that the Bible is against telling people who have never heard God's word about it? The Pope. All right, on to the next point. (laughs) 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 Lastly, we see to repent of your sins and believe the good news. The last title of the previous sermon was Repent and Be Baptized. Simply because, you know, baptizing was symbolic for washing away your sins and uncleanliness. Yet, if you didn't repent and you continued to do these things that were dirty in you, the baptism would just be symbolic but rather vain, right? Here we see to repent and believe. And we can't expect an instantaneous repentance, firstly. It's a process. It's never, oh, I accept the Lord into my heart and then I never sin again. And many times, even if we try and repent in a particular area, it doesn't mean that we won't never do that again. It's a conscious turning away from sin. But I'll be honest with you. When I read this portion of the verse, I was really struggling with it. I'll tell you why. There's three very common views in regards to salvation and how we're saved. You could say one is grace alone. We could call this Calvinism, though you can not be a Calvinist and still believe this. Another one is works alone. Humans are good enough to save themselves. That's called Pelagianism. And the third option is you're somewhere in between grace and works. And I'll be honest with you, I've been everywhere across this spectrum throughout my life. I was listening to a sermon earlier this month that I preached like two, three years ago, and I couldn't help but think I sound mighty Pelagian in this sermon. I'm not going to quote what I said. I was listening to a sermon that I had preached about a year ago, and I couldn't help but think I sound like I'm in the middle at this point. And it wasn't until like a couple of months ago when I was listening to Paul Washer that I actually ended up on the far left. I'm not a Calvinist, but I do believe in grace alone salvation. The thing is, whenever you see to repent and believe, maybe it's just me, but at first here, that sounds a lot like it's in the middle. In order to be saved, you have to do this, and you have to believe this. In order to be saved, you have to commit the work of repentance, as well as have the faith in the Lord. At the very least, that's for it, right? Recently, actually today, I was supposed to finish reading through the Bible for the third time, and when I was going through the New Testament, I was especially focused on issues of salvation, and I couldn't help but notice something. There tend to be two groups of description here. You have discipleship and you have salvation. See, the salvational matters many times tend to go to faith. And I'm going to explain how this repentance thing in this context isn't working a bit. But salvation many times when you look at the scriptures in context is just belief. Yet, with that belief, works will ultimately follow. There's no question about it. And here's an analogy, right? If you have faith in a chair, I'm going to go over here camera could follow, hopefully. If you have faith in a chair, you're going to sit on it comfortably. No question in your mind. You don't need to support yourself because you know the chair can hold your weight. Now, if you just say you have faith in a chair and you brace your feet firmly against the floor and you place your hands tightly on the grip just in case the chair gives away, that's not faith. You see, faith is to fully trust in the chair, that it can support your weight and it won't give away. Even if you lean back, hands on the back of your head, feet off the ground, the chair got you. That's an action that follows, right? 
See, this repentance that we see with repent and believe is really two sides of the same coin of salvation. Because, see, the thing is, and I mentioned this in past sermons, there's really two sides you can be on. You can be with God or you can be against God. No two ways about it. You can be for righteousness or you can be for evil. No two sides about it. Either you're for righteousness or you're not, basically. Right. And see, when we see repentance, it's a turning away from, say, being with sin, being with our nature to God. And the thing is, it's not even necessarily our works, because, again, perfect repentance is impossible in the flesh. But what it is, is a heart changing thing. It's a perspective changing thing. Right. It was so difficult for me to initially wrestle with this scripture to think I may have been wrong about this whole grace alone thing. But scripture was oddly consistent. What am I saying? Oddly, it's the breathed word of God. Scripture was consistent. When you look at the word and you look at the context, disciples sure are called to many specific rules and regulations. But when you look at salvation, many times it is a faith and belief and a changing of heart, not our works. And I couldn't help but think, you know, if it was works alone or if it was faith and works, then my works would only be pulling me back. I couldn't help but think, you know, when Jesus had stated in the New Testament that if you hate your brother, it's as though you have committed murder against them. Or if you have looked upon a woman and you have lusted for her in your heart, it's as though you have committed adultery with her. And I couldn't help but think I've done both of those a lot. (laughs) I couldn't help but think, you know, I've hated quite a few people in my life and murder sounds pretty serious to me. I don't know. I mean, especially in my youth, there's this saying that, you know, pornography is like TV. I've lusted a lot. And that's adultery. That sounds like a serious sin to me. As far as I could tell, looking through scripture and the expectations placed upon us, even by Jesus, for those people to say, but did Jesus specifically talk about this? It would be that our works, no matter how good of a person we may think we are, would only hold us back, even if it was works and grace. Mm. All I can say is, I sure do hope that it's grace alone. And I'm going to live in God. I'm going to have faith in God. I'm going to repent in my heart. But I sure do hope that it's grace alone. Can we continue on, church? Amen. Amen. And I'll give you a couple definitions of repentance. There's quite a few definitions, actually, and some of them will point to different things, but I'll I'll list a few. Firstly, we have Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. They state that it is literally a change of mind, not about individual plans, intentions, or beliefs, but rather a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. You have Wayne Grudem, who states, a decision of resolve to turn away from one's evil or wrongful conduct. And let's just put it simply. Repentance is turning to God. You could plug yourself into there and you could say it with me now. Repentance is simply I'm turning to God. You can say it along. I'm turning to God. I'm turning to God. Amen. It's beautiful. And I'm even reminded of a saying from a book I had read last week. And the book was simply titled How to Pray. And the quote in the book was, I would rather have little faith in a big God than a lot of faith in a little God, lowercase g at that. Even though it's faith alone, it's not even like we're saved because we have a lot of faith. We're saved because of who we have faith in. We're saved because we have faith in an all-powerful God who can bridge any gap that separates us from him. We're saved not because we're good People, good Samaritans, strong believers with faith that we can tell a mountain to get up and move and it doesn't. But again, because we have a little bit of faith in a huge God. It's beautiful. And if you're a new believer, a young believer, rather, and you see this repentance in your life, you may just be looking at the fruits. I got to tell you this. It's a process and you cannot expect your repentance to look like somebody who's 30 years senior in Christianity to you. Hmm. I'm not even talking about putting yourself up to a perfect standard, but some things come just with 
time walking with God for season after season after season after season. And if you're comparing your repentance to somebody who's been doing this for 10 times longer than you, it may be a disappointing result, but it doesn't mean you're not repenting. The question could be, do I have seeds of repentance? None of us ever reach perfection in it, but are we showing seeds of repentance? That we're growing in this process, not remaining stagnant and not showing no signs at all. But do I have seeds of repentance? And it begins with thoughts, right? I'm thinking differently. I don't want to do this. Even if I do still stumble and do it sometimes, I don't want to do it. I want to turn to God. I want to read my word every day. I want to be in prayer. I want to come to God constantly. And sometimes I may fail, but I will try and try again. I want to serve. And then from our thoughts, it goes to our words. It's not just us thinking it, but it's just getting on a FaceTime call, even if it's with somebody who's not a believer and telling them, man, I really want to give my life to God. It goes from our words to our actions. It goes from our actions to our habits, from our habits to our behaviors, from our behaviors to our identity and from our identity to what we idolize. Mm. Regardless of which side you stand on, ultimately, it'll end in what you idolize, whether God or, or something evil. As the word says, you can't serve two masters because you'll love one and hate the other. And again, there's only two sides to this. A lot of issues have gray, but this is not one of them. You're either with God or against God. Amen. And the interesting thing is, many times what has to happen is we have to recognize the need. You can't save somebody who firstly doesn't think they need saving. If you're going skydiving with a friend who is just so confident, I can fly. And you get up there in the plane, you're 30,000 feet in the air, you're saying, hey, bro, I have this extra parachute. Do you want it? They may grab it and then put it on the ground and jump without it. Why? Because I can fly. You cannot save someone who does not think they need saving, regardless of how irrational it may look from your side. Hmm. We're all in need of a savior. And many times the change of a heart doesn't begin with a proclamation to serve God. It begins with a proclamation to need God. God, I need you. I can't, but you can. God, I'm lost. You are the light in the darkness, and I'm tired of not being able to see clearly. God, I've been misled by others near me, but I know that the only right direction comes from you. God, I'm weak. I've had these habitual things and it seems as though they become a part of me and I just can't get away from them. But I know that in Christ Jesus, no matter how strong the bindings, they can be broken free. It begins with acknowledging need. And again, it's a process. It's not instant and it'll never be perfect in the flesh. But the good news is we don't need a lot of faith because we just have a little faith in a truly big God. I don't know how to say it any differently. (laughs) I don't think I need to say it any differently. You may be sitting out there right now experiencing a level of conviction. And I'm with you on that. To be quite frank, I have never been more excited to preach a sermon in my life. (laughs) Repent and believe are three words that are so crucial and they don't just change one's life here, but eternally. That spiritual kingdom that Jesus said is near It's near and it's not in proximity. It's not on the earth, but it's near in the sense that this life is like a breeze. It's here in the morning. It's gone in the evening. Tomorrow is never guaranteed. And I'm not trying to fear trip you, just reality. You could put your faith in whatever you choose. I can't save you. Only God can do that. If you want to give your life to God, I'm afraid to tell you this, but I only have the standard things for you. Open your word. Pray. In the book, How to Pray, he gave an interesting approach to prayer. And it was to read the word as you pray. You go one line and then you read it twice. You read it slowly. If any word catches your attention, you stop and you focus on that. God, what do you want me to get from this? 
You go another line and you stop and you read it slowly. And God, what do you want me to get from this? It's an approach that allows for us to get intimate with scripture, because let's be honest, there's a lot of information in the world. It's a go, 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 go world. If you're on TikTok, you can get dose after dose after dose of dopamine. And all you have to do is swipe up. And yet we're called to be slow in the Lord. (laughs) It seems intimidating, but I'll be honest with you. A lot of that stuff is vain. Solomon had hundreds of wives. Solomon had the kingdom. He had the castles. He had the temples. He had the wealth. He had everything. He had wisdom even. And even though he had everything you could ask for from the world, in the end of it all, he said it was all vain. Solomon allowed for the riches of the world, the wealth of the world to corrupt him and turn away from God. And in the end, he said it was all vanity. Solomon had more relationships, more sex, more wealth, more palaces, more chariots than any of us in here combined will ever have. And yet the man who was granted wisdom by God still in the end could only say vanity. Give your life to God and it begins with, I can't, but you can. Jesus is the way. Not a way. He is the way. My time is counted down, down to five seconds. 23 minutes, three words. Repent and believe. Be blessed, everybody. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was part two of the series titled Repent and Believe by George Bronner. This message is number 4113. That's 4113. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4113 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to iwanttogive.com. That's iwanttogive.com. Listen to brothersoftheword.com often because, brother, you need the word. Oh, brothers of the word.